The text for the sermon is Luke 4, 38 through 44. If you're using one of the pew Bibles below the sanctuary seats, you'll find this passage on page 860. Luke 4, 38 through 44. As you turn there, I do want to encourage those of you who maybe didn't hear the announcement about this uh, with another reminder. You should have seen this before. We've talked about this before, but our membership class starts today. And so don't leave the sanctuary. It's going on right now. Uh, But if you missed the first week, that's all right. You can hop into the class next week. And this is a good opportunity for if, if you're at all interested in our church, what we believe, what we're about, our history and where we're going. This is the class to take that gets you a lot of that information. We do want you to know, and I think we've, we make this clear, we value membership in the local church. And so I'm a big believer. I recognize that if you're a Christian, you are part of the universal church. You are part of the redeemed that is comprised of every believer, past, present, and future. And yet we believe the scriptures teach the importance of committing yourself to a local church. That no man is an island in the Christian life. That we are to join together in a formal way, submit to the leadership, the imperfect leadership in an imperfect church. And uh, a church is to be accountable for and lead us in our discipleship. And so we do that through membership. And again, um, our goal is that if you attend our church and if you stick around, eventually you will move into membership. We recognize that people come from all different backgrounds theologically to our church. And also people come to our church who have been hurt by the local church. We're willing to wait. We're willing to uh, work through issues, whether they're theological or they're in regards to church hurt in the past. Uh, And yet, that doesn't diminish this reality. We believe membership matters. Uh, And eventually, we hope that you will commit to either our church or another Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church. Now, before I read this morning's passage, I think that it will be helpful to give you a quick review of what we've covered so far in chapter 4. We're going to complete our time in chapter 4 this morning, but we've spent about a month in this chapter, a little over a month in this chapter, so I think it's worth reviewing what we've covered. The chapter begins with Jesus overcoming the devil's temptations in the wilderness. The devil throws everything he can at Jesus. He tempts him in physical ways, and spiritual ways. He tries to give him a route to glory that will avoid the cross, Jesus doesn't take any of the temptations. He withstands the devil's lies. He is the obedient son. He is the Christ, and he will go to the cross. He's not taking a shortcut. And so after uh, the, the temptation in the wilderness, uh, Luke tells us about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, telling us that Jesus began traveling throughout the region of Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath, ministering and performing miracles and casting out demons. And along the way, one of the stops that Jesus made was in Nazareth, the town that he grew up in. And while he was there, as his his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And that Sabbath, he read a passage from the scroll of Isaiah that spoke of an anointed Christ figure who the Spirit of the Lord was upon who would proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after he read this passage, Jesus pronounced himself to be the fulfillment of that passage. Rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, everybody looking at him, and he said, now this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And those in the synagogue, we might not understand what Jesus is saying there, but those in the synagogue understood what he was saying. He was declaring himself to be that Christ, the Christ, the one that Isaiah was speaking of in that passage that he had just read. Now, initially, those in the synagogue marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth. They were amazed at what he had just said, his authority, that he would say these things. They got excited about the possibilities. But this excitement, this marvel at his words didn't last very long, for the people began questioning how it could be that Jesus, the son of Joseph, who they knew, they knew Jesus' family, he had grown up in that town, how he could be the fulfillment of that passage. And then we read in Luke 4, 28 through 30, people were filled with wrath. They marveled at his words at first. They were excited about the possibilities. And all of a sudden, they're filled with wrath towards Jesus. Picking up in verse 29. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their mist, he, that is Jesus, went away. And here we see the pattern in Jesus' ministry. This is how it will go for Jesus. Initially, he will go to a town and people will be excited about Jesus. They will be excited about what he says and what he does. They will praise him and receive him at first, but then they will turn on him and they will reject him. This pattern that happens throughout his ministry will culminate in Jesus being betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas, arrested in secret, mocked, beaten, nailed to the cross, where he was put to death. And so even from the beginning of his public ministry, we see this pattern unfolding. In last week's passage, Luke tells us what happened after Jesus left Nazareth and went to the city of Capernaum. He went into a synagogue again to teach, and while he was there, he casted out a demon from a man. And our passage really picks up uh, what happened after he left the synagogue that day and tells us what Jesus did next. And so would those who are able please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Luke 4, 38 through 44. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with the high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, you are great and we are not. Again, we are reminded, at least we should be reminded, of our weakness. Sometimes we think we are strong And even if we are strong for a time, our strength will fail us. If we live long enough, we will forget things. We will forget people's names. We'll lose our keys over and over again. And eventually, some of us will lose our minds. We may be strong right now, physically, and yet if we live long enough, 
that strength will fade. We may have many friends today, and yet due to uh, the, the realities of life or sin, eventually we may lose some of these friends. God, help us to know and recognize our weaknesses. And in seeing our weaknesses, help us to recognize your greatness. You are the God who does not lose strength. You are the great God that we have come to worship, to praise, to delight in. You are our God. And as we ponder your greatness and your glory, that you are indeed holy, that there is none like you, that you are set apart, that you are the creator of all, that everything was made for you and is sustained by you, we come to a text, a passage in your word that you want us to read and understand and apply. And it is rich with another truth that you are gracious and kind. You have all authority and power and you are kind and gracious toward those who are suffering. Lord, I believe that many of us need to be reminded of these true realities. Maybe some of us need to be reminded of our weakness and your greatness, especially this morning. And others of us need to be reminded of your kindness, your grace, and your mercy towards the suffering. God, help us this morning to savor, to delight in, to rejoice in all the truths that you have in this passage. If there's a rebuke that you have for us, may we receive it in faith a correction for our hearts, something that we have not seen in our lives that, that needs to be addressed. You are the gracious God who disciplines his children. You are the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who works mightily through the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would work. You would work in our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray also for those who are suffering among us, those who are sick, who are facing uh, illness, who are, are battling through about with the flu or, or um, some other uh, virus that is going around, have family members dealing with these things, those who are facing cancer, who are, who are preparing for surgeries or recovering from surgeries. Lord, may you minister to their hearts, whether they're here or at home today. May your word and the truth of the gospel bless them today. Lord, we thank you for all of your blessings. And one of the great blessings that you have given to your people is the local church. Despite our imperfections, despite our failures and our struggles with sin, you have blessed us with one another. People to encourage us, to remind us of your, your word, of, of your truth, to gather together as a local church, to sing praise to you, to confess our sins with, to, to pray with, and to hear the word with. And may you give us a sweet sense of this blessing today. All for your glory and the sake of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week's passage had us especially looking at two of the distinguishing marks in Jesus Christ and his ministry. That is divine authority and sovereign power. We saw these two marks clearly and they were put on display in last week's passage. And they will be on display for us again in this week's passage. But this morning we will be especially focusing on another distinguishing mark of Jesus Christ and his ministry, and that is compassion. I want to be clear with you from the outset, this is one of those passages that has so many things that could lead a preacher on so many different glory trails. 
And, and I went personally on many of these glory trails this morning. And I, I, I have this sense, and I stayed up late last night because I had this sense of, I didn't touch on so many things in this passage. And I'm comforted by this, that all of the things that are in this passage will be in other passages in Luke. And so we'll pick up and, and we'll touch on some of these things, uh, but we'll pick them up more and we'll press more into them in other passages. But what I especially came back to over and over again, and was so good for my heart to ponder and to meditate on in this passage, is simply this, God's compassion. That's what I want you to, to get a sense of this morning as I preach through this passage. Now, compassion is showing concern for others who are suffering, and compassion can be shown in any number of ways. When we grieve with someone who is grieving, when we listen to them as they experience suffering, as we encourage those who are suffering with the truth of God's word, we are showing them compassion. When someone is suffering because they lack food or shelter or clothing or need care because they cannot care for themselves, whether it's because of some physical issue or because of their age, we show them compassion by giving them food, shelter, clothing, or by caring for them. Those who care for the sick and dying show them compassion. We have had people in our church who have, have had to care for a loved one, whether it was an elderly parent or a spouse who, who was dying. And there was not going to be a recovery. And day after day, as they poured out their lives, doing things that were difficult, spending so much time caring for that person's physical needs, they showed them compassion. And in all these examples, we see that compassion requires more than our feelings. There are feelings involved in compassion, but, but feeling requires more than compassion. It requires that we do something, meaning compassion will cost us something. It might be that showing compassion costs us our time. If you're going to care for someone, if you're going to listen to someone who's in a place of suffering and grieving, you have to give up some of your time. Rather than go and do a hobby that day or spend your time doing something else, you will need to give up that time. It will cost you your time to show compassion. It will also cost us our tears. I know I'm getting again into emotions, but there's emotions involved. If you're with somebody who is struggling, who is suffering, maybe you don't literally drop tears down your face, but, but there's going to be emotions that, that are going on. And you know what we like to do? Oftentimes, we want to avoid that. We'd rather think happy thoughts. And yet, if someone's suffering and we're there with them, we will feel, in some sense, what they're feeling. Not the same way, but we will experience with them their suffering. We will need to acknowledge and, and we will get a sense, if we are caring for them, that they are in pain and, and that will grieve us. It will cost us our energy. It takes your energy to, to show compassion. Emotional, physical, spiritual energy will need to be exerted. And at times, it will take money. One of the great idols in our country and even in the church. You may need to pay for something. If you have an elderly parent who no longer has the funds to care for themselves, I do believe that as Christians, it is our duty to care for that elderly parent and, and to use our money to care for them. And so compassion will always cost us something. We will see that in this passage. In this passage, Jesus will show his compassion for others by healing the sick, by liberating the demon-possessed, and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. All three ways he shows compassion. 
Now, the first person who experiences Jesus's compassion in this passage is Simon's mother-in-law. Now, when I read that, that, that portion about Simon's mother-in-law, and even now as I say Simon's mother-in-law, some of you may not have made the connection to why this is significant, why it's a significant thing that this is Simon's mother-in-law. This Simon is Peter. The same Peter who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, an apostle, and the writer of First and Second Peter. And this is made clear in Matthew's Gospel, which records the same event but uses the name Peter, which Christ gives him later on instead of the name Simon, which was his name given to him at birth. Matthew 8, 14 and 15. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with the fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Uh, in other places, Peter is called Cephas, also Simeon. I mean, this guy, he has four names in scripture, and one of them is Simon. And here we find that Simon, or Peter, his mother-in-law, was sick with a fever. And some of you have made this other connection. That means that Peter was married. Now, this is an interesting detail for us to know. Maybe some of you didn't realize that Peter was married. Now, it's more than just a detail to, to know and to remember if you get chosen for Jeopardy and this question comes up. Oh, great, I know, I know the answer. Peter was married. It, it also creates an interesting problem for the Roman Catholic Church because though it's not the biggest issue that we evangelical Protestants have with the papacy and the Catholic priesthood, their requirement that priests not marry contradicts the practice of the very man who they consider to be the first pope. Of course, they have various answers, various ways of dealing with this conundrum, one being that they believe that Peter's wife died before he became the Pope. But still, this is another reminder to us. I'm not trying to just take a cheap shot at, at Roman Catholics here. This is another reminder to us that our traditions must submit to Scripture rather than Scripture submitting to our traditions. Because when, when our Scriptures, the Scriptures, God's Word, submits to our traditions, it's going to cause great damage to us and to others. And we see this in their view of the Pope and their priests needing to be celibate. There's always a danger when our traditions trump Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that we disregard tradition. I do believe there's a place for tradition, but it does mean that our traditions submit to the Scripture. Our biggest issue, though, as evangelical Protestants is not with their teachings on the celibacy of their priests or even their view of the Pope. Our biggest issue with the Roman Catholic Church is their teachings on their doctrine of justification because their doctrine of justification rejects our doctrine of justification. And we believe the doctrine of justification is at the very heart of the gospel. That is, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. They don't believe the alone part. They believe the Roman Catholic Church teaches that it's grace and our works working with grace. And so they get the very heart of the gospel wrong. I was reminded of the importance of this this week. After I was done with a meeting here at church, and as I was waiting for uh, my son to be done with his basketball practice, I decided to go to Starbucks up on National and Moreland. And I sat down, and 
I'm one of those people that likes to look around and see what, what people are reading, what's going on there. I often have some of the best spiritual conversations with people at coffee shops. People tend to like read, and, and I don't mind interrupting people. And so I, I was polite. I saw this man sitting at a table right on the other side of me, and, and he had a book, and I noticed that there were some, some scripture passages, some Bible passages on the page. And so I, I do what I, I normally do. I interrupt uh, somebody like that, and, and I said, excuse me. I would like to know what book you're reading. And so he gave me that. I had never heard of the book. And, and, uh, and I said, it looks like there's some scripture in the book. He said, oh, yes. And I said, are you a Christian? And he said, oh, yes, very much so. And we began to strike up a conversation. Well, it turns out this man was Roman Catholic. And so I proceeded to ask him some questions and was interested in his answers. And, and I said, um, you know, what do you think the main differences are between the, the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church? And he gave me some answers. And I went to this doctrine. And I said, actually, I believe, and I believe that church history, both on the Roman Catholic side and the Protestant side, says it was this, the doctrine of justification. And I was both encouraged and sad at the end of the conversation. I was encouraged because as I proceeded to explain the doctrine of justification, went into the holiness of God with this man and talked about how no sinner can be righteous before a holy God in any other way than by God's own grace. That we needed Jesus to die on the cross to atone for our sins and salvation is all of grace. He said, I think I believe that. And I said, that's wonderful. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't teach that. And then this is why I was sad. What he left me with, at least on the, on the spiritual side of the conversation, was, well, I, I'm not ready to leave the Roman Catholic Church. His tradition trumped the scriptures. And that's a danger. It's always dangerous when that happens. Well, moving back into the, to the text and what we see here, Jesus, Peter, and the others were at the synagogue, we're told, Meanwhile, Simon's mother-in-law was at home ill, suffering from a high fever. Now, many of us, if not all of us, have experienced various degrees of fevers. With this being cold and flu season, a number of us have recently had a fever or, or have had to care for somebody who we love, whether it be a family member or a friend who has had a fever recently. And you know how fevers often go. They, they begin at some point with this extreme feeling of cold, the shivering. And then what happens? You get a blanket or someone puts a nice big blanket, maybe one of those weighted blankets that are so popular now over you, and, and it's, it, you start to feel a little bit better. But then what do you feel? You're burning up under the blanket. And, and, and that's uncomfortable. So you're cold, then you're hot, and then all of a sudden, and it's so uncomfortable, the fever breaks and, and you begin to sweat. And that's uncomfortable. These are not fun things to endure. Fevers. And, and from what we see in this passage, we get the sense that this was a serious fever. This was no light fever. You know what, what she was feeling and experiencing. You also know what it's like to see someone who you love very much suffering, whether it be your child, your spouse, your sister, or your brother, your mom or your dad, a close friend. You know what it's like when, when you go and, and you try to help them, but there's really nothing you can do. You, you try to show them compassion. Maybe you bring them the blanket. You put it over them and, and you give them a kiss on the forehead. Uh, you, you then bring them in the ice pack because now they're sweating and the blanket's off and, and, they, and they're trying to cool off. You've, you've made them the chicken soup and you've brought it over to their house. I've had people in our church bring me chicken soup when I've had a bout with the flu or a cold. Maybe you bring them white soda. I always love this. I, I don't know if it's really the best thing, but my mom would bring me white soda. I'm like, get sick, drink soda? Great. And so, so you brought them the white soda or maybe the crackers, and, and, and it's, it's been no good. 
They're still suffering. And all you can do is, is wait it out and pray. But Simon Peter and the others at the house that day had another option. They, they had another option. Jesus was there. Maybe he could help her. Maybe he could heal her. I mean, after all, they had just been in the synagogue. They had seen what Jesus had done with the, the demon-possessed man. He cast it out. They, they, they may have seen him perform other miracles. They had likely heard the stories about Jesus doing uh, things like this before. And so what did they do? They appealed to Jesus to do something for her. And that's what he did. We were told that Jesus went to Peter's mother-in-law. Now, if this was a typical Palestinian or Israelite home, it would have likely been a one-room home. So everybody was in the house. They could see everything that was going on. And, and Peter's mother-in-law would have been lying somewhere on, on a bed or, or uh, on, on a mat. And, and the, the people in the house would have seen Jesus go over to her. Just picture it. Jesus going over to this woman who's, who's ill with the fever. Maybe it's serious. Maybe it's to, to the point of dangerous for her life. And, and just as he had done with the demon, Jesus rebuked the illness and it left her. That's interesting in and of itself. He rebuked the illness. I don't believe that, um, you know, again, this is a model for how we should deal with fevers. This is Jesus. And um, it's teaching us something here. But it is interesting that Jesus personifies the, the fever. It's also interesting that not only does the demon have to obey Jesus, but the fever, everything and everyone must obey Jesus. It's another picture of his authority and power. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law in that instant. And, and this, again, wasn't some gradual healing. Now, this is one of those glory trails that, that I went off in and then I had to take out of my sermon late on Saturday night because I realized it was already long. So I'm going to try to summarize it briefly here. Uh, this is, this is in, in opposition to those supposed faith healers that, that some gravitate to. If you've seen the American gospel, which has been passed around through community groups and many people in our church have watched it, it exposes this as well. People walking around saying, do you have any ailments? And saying, I know I'm fine. And they, well, I do have a kind of sore back. And what does th this person do? They go over to the person, they start rubbing their back and saying, can I pray for you? Sure. I mean, you're already rubbing my back. Sure. Pray for me. And, and then they pray for them and they say, you know, something like, uh, does your back feel better? And the person says, why, yes, it does. You know why? Because they've just gotten a back rub. Of course your back feels better. If somebody rubs my back, it feels better as well. And there, there's all these little parlor tricks, these leg lengthening, one leg's too short and leg length. This, this is not what's going on in this passage. In an instant, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. It was a miracle. And this is evidenced by her getting up and serving them. She had been seriously ill, but after Jesus heals her, she's showing them hospitality. What, what normally happens when somebody's just gotten over sickness? What, what do you do? What, what we do as parents is that you're going to be taking it easy. So I know you say you feel better, but you're not going outside to play with your brothers today. I know the kids are coming over from church or from school and you guys are playing. and all that. No, you're going to be in the house today. You're going to be taking it easy. I, I know you, you haven't gotten sick again for 24 hours, but, but you're still on the, the chicken noodle diet. No brownies for you, son. Why? Because the body's still recovering. We, we, we don't want to push it too hard too quickly. But that's not what happens here. It had been a miraculous work of God. 
I do wonder what Peter and the rest of the people in the house that they they did and said when she started serving them, likely preparing them food, cleaning up the house. Oh, you guys are all here. Here, grab a seat. I mean, she was just laying in bed, sick with the fever, a dangerous fever. And now she's up and at him, peppy, smiling, walking around, cleaning things up, getting getting food ready to to care for them. I mean, what would you do? Uh, What's going on? Were they in wonder over what they were seeing? Were they speechless for some time? Did they ask her questions? Are you sure you're feeling up for this? Did they go to Jesus and say, what did you just do? Did Jesus just smile at them and give them a wink? And we don't know, but what we do know is that it was an act of compassion. It was an act of compassion that continues to show all who read about it, God's compassionate heart towards the suffering. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Christ, who is God in human flesh, saw a woman who was sick and suffering with the high fever. And what was his response? Compassion. He cared for her. The King of kings, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, cared about her. Understand, there is no one more important. There is no one greater. There is no one more powerful, more significant than Jesus Christ in all the world. No one. If you have a good doctrine of Christ, you understand this. And the most important person who has ever lived, the God-man, how does he interact with those who are suffering? And this is what I so want you to see this morning. He shows them compassion. Jesus is not just compassionate in theory. He is compassionate towards real people, people who are suffering, people who are hurting, people who are in need of God's grace. Sometimes we go through the miracle passages. The gospel writer lumps them all together. And he healed many. You know, think about those are stories of real people who were suffering for who knows how long with that physical ailment, that sickness, whatever it was. People that have been demon-possessed for who knows how long. And, And the gospel writer just lumps them all together. And he healed many and cast out demons. These are real people with real names. And here we have at least kind of a name. This was Peter's mother-in-law, a real person in need of God's grace. And what was Peter's mother-in-law's response to this healing? Gratitude. She had a desire to serve Christ and others after she had experienced God's grace. This, of course, is the same response of the true Christian who has experienced God's compassion in Christ, who has been changed by God's grace This is our hearts as Christians. He has showed us compassion. I mean, think about it. Not not just in in, in healing physically or spiritually. He has shown us compassion by going to the cross. Your biggest problem in life was sin. You were headed to hell. And what did God do? He sent his son. And what did God's son, who is God, do? He went to the cross. And what has the Spirit come and done? He has opened your eyes and he has changed your heart. God has shown you compassion, Christian. Do you remember? Or has the busyness of your life and the distractions of the world caused you to forget God's compassion towards you? I believe that this morning's passage is a call for you not to forget Don't let your heart be smitten with the emptiness of the world's compassion because it does not match God's compassion. You and I were not just ill 
We were not just enslaved to sin. You and I were dead in our sins, but God made us alive. You and me and every Christian, he made us alive. We were objects of his wrath, but he poured out his wrath on his son. For his glory and out of love, compassion, he did this. In Christ, God raised us up and gave us new life. This is what motivates me and you. It's what should motivate us as Christians to serve Christ and others. We too have been shown compassion in Christ through Jesus' life. He lived the life that we could not live. You and I should have kept the laws of God, but we have broken God's laws over and over, even after we trust in Christ. But Jesus didn't. Why? To live the life that you and I could not and have not lived. And then he dies on the cross showing his compassion to you again, Christian, pleading and and calling out to all who will trust in him. And then God raises him from the dead, all of its compassion. This gracious and glorious act of God's compassion has forever changed us. We are to obey simply because we're sons and daughters and we're commanded as, as our Father in heaven tells us to do this or that, we're to obey. But here's, here's another motivating factor for why we, we do what we do as Christians. Because we have experienced the compassion, the love, the grace of God. Well, word spread quickly throughout Capernaum about how Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. In verse 40, we read, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Can you picture it? I can. People throughout the city of Capernaum hearing that Jesus had come to their city and had healed Simon's mother-in-law. And they started to talk. People wandering around. Did you hear what happened? At Peter's house today? Did you hear what Jesus, this, this, this amazing teacher, did there? He healed Simon's mother-in-law. Talking and starting to think, wait a second. My mom's sick. My dad's sick. My son is sick. My spouse is sick. My friend is sick. Putting the pieces together. Maybe he's going to do this for more people. Adult daughters wondering if Jesus could heal her elderly mom who had been sick for weeks, dying. A young husband whose wife had been suffering with a debilitating disease, thinking maybe, maybe Jesus can heal her. Parents who had lost hope that their child who was suffering with a terrible disease would make it. Groups of friends carrying their sick and ill friends to Jesus. And, and what does our Lord do? Again, here it is on display for you, Christian. The compassion of Christ. Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. All of them. You know what Jesus spent that night doing? Healing people and casting out demons. Sometimes we come to passages in Scripture that use the word all to capture, uh, to help us better understand how many people came out. So there are passages that say all of Judea came out to, to hear Jesus preach. That does not mean that every single person that was in Judea, the region of Judea, came out. There would have been elderly people dying uh, that were left behind. There would have been moms nursing and caring for children that stayed home. But it gives us a sense that a massive amount of people had come out to hear Jesus preach in that, in that passage. That's what's being communicated. Here, something else is being com- communicated. Jesus laid his hands on every one of those who came to him and healed them. That's an amazing thought to consider when we reflect on the compassion of Christ. This is the one who has all authority and power. 
who tells the demons to be quiet and to be gone, and they must obey. This is the one who will come back triumphant, having defeated sin and death through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and will judge the living and the dead. The same one. And while he's on earth, while he's ministering physically with, with, with real people here on earth, what is he doing? He's showing compassion. So many people miss this. For whatever reason, they don't get a sense of the compassion of Christ. And here it is on display for us in this passage. Every one of those who came, who were dragged, who were carried to Jesus in Capernaum that day, he healed them all. And in verse 41, we see the, the second way that Christ showed his compassion to people who were suffering in Capernaum. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Apparently, the, the man in the synagogue earlier in Luke 4.33 wasn't the only one who had been tormented by demons. There were many others like him in Capernaum. And Jesus Christ did the, the very same miraculous work for them that he did for the man in the synagogue who had been possessed by a demon. He showed them compassion by liberating them from being held captive and oppressed by unclean demons. And just the, 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 the idea of just swarms of people who were sick and dying, who were possessed by demons, just all trudging along, making their way to, to this home where Jesus was in Capernaum. I do believe it's a picture of us outside of and before Christ. We're all so weak. That's why I started the pastoral prayer with that. We need to understand that we are weak. We are in need of God's compassion. And here he shows his compassion, not just in this passage, but to us in Christ. Both the physically and the spiritually sick come to Jesus and he shows them compassion. Do you see that there is no inconsistency in Jesus' ministry? He has all authority and all power and he is compassionate. He spent his night healing the sick and liberating people from demons. Now, we're told that the demons who left the people cried out that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning they recognized him publicly before all those that were there, that he was the Christ, the anointed one, the one that Jesus had proclaimed himself to be in Nazareth. And like Jesus did to the demons in, in the synagogue, and will do often, he silenced the demons, not permitting them to speak about him. It's an interesting question to ask. Why didn't Jesus want the, the demons speaking about him? Why wouldn't he want these demons telling everyone there that he was the Christ, the promised Messiah? Biblical scholars have, have a term for this, for what Jesus does here. They call it the messianic secret because Jesus was very secretive until the end of his, his ministry regarding his identity as the Messiah. He didn't deny it, but he's often telling demons and others to, to be quiet, to not go and, and say these things. Not only commanding demons, but, but various times after he heals somebody, he says, go and tell no one, he, he will tell people. But just do what you're supposed to do. Go to the temple and offer the sacrifice, do the washing, but don't tell anyone about this. One answer for why Jesus does this that makes much sense to me is that Jesus knew that there was a widespread misunderstanding in Israel about the mission and identity of the Messiah. So many, the majority, if not the vast majority of the Jews, wanted a political Messiah. They wanted this royal, militant Messiah, someone who would destroy the Roman occupiers with his might. They didn't understand that the, the true Messiah would, would be a suffering servant, 
sent to die to save sinners by atoning for our sins and reconciling us to God. I think that this was one of, if not the main reasons, that Jesus was so secretive about his identity as the Messiah. But I think there's another reason why Jesus commanded the demons here to be silent, and it had to do with the demons' reasoning for saying these things about Jesus. Now, the demons weren't doing evangelism in this passage. They're not trying to convert people to Christ. They're not saying, hey, you know, we've, we've done a whole lot of damage here. We've messed a whole lot of people's lives all up. But, but so you know, he's, he's the Christ. That, that's not their motive here. They weren't trying to get people to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. The demons don't have the authority or power to directly oppose, contradict, or even deny Jesus. And so instead, and this is what I think they're doing here, what's motivating them, the demons do what they and the devil often tries to do. They, they try to confuse and distract people. By announcing Jesus to be the Son of God, the demons were trying to associate themselves with Jesus. Think about it. There's a man possessed by a demon. The demon's cast out. And as he's being casted out, he, he connects himself to Jesus. And so the people would have been confused. Wait a second, is Jesus with the demons? Later on, people will claim that Jesus does these, these things. He casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the, 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 the father of lies, Satan. And so that, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to confuse. That's all they can do is confuse and distract. It's actually similar to how people will, will try to use Jesus today. The demons are trying to use Jesus for their own purpose. People do this today. They, they do this for their own gain. Sometimes it's a politician who says they are good with Jesus. They're good with Jesus. Not because he or she is a Christian, but, but so that Christians will vote for them. They're, they're using Jesus. Or sometimes it's a boy who acts like they're interested in the things of God. Who, who doesn't mind going to church all of a sudden. Why? Because he likes a certain Christian girl who happens to love the things of God and goes to church. Or maybe it's a business owner who is not a Christian but pretends to be a Christian for their own financial gain. But Jesus will not allow it. He will not let the demons use him and, and he is going to judge those who, who try to do this with him today. So in what is another demonstration of his authority and power, Jesus silences the demons. I actually think it's, it's, it's an act of compassion as well. I mean, who wants to listen to a bunch of demons screaming out you know, I love my boys. I, I love them. But they can be so loud. And one of the most compassionate things I can do sometimes in our home is when they are being excessively loud. When I know that my wonderful, beautiful wife has had a rough day and I'm home, one of the, the most compassionate things I can do is to go into that place of loudness and say, sons, I, I'm so thankful. I'm so happy that you're happy right now, that you're having a great time doing whatever you're doing. But shh. Your loud voices are overwhelming almost everybody else in this house. And so I think it was an act of compassion. Maybe it's being a little uh, uh, ridiculous here to, to make that switch, but I think it is. We don't want to hear from demons, and so he quiets them. Now, my children are not demons, by the way, just, just to make that clear. They're not angels either, but they're not demons. Uh, but sometimes we just need quiet, and Jesus gave those people quietness. And this brings us to the last portion of our passage where we, we find another way that Jesus showed compassion. And that is by preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. We read in verses 42 through 44. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. 
But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. After a long night spent healing the sick and liberating those who who were tormented by demons, Jesus left them and went to an isolated, a desolate place to recover, to spend some time alone with God and to prepare himself to to preach in another city. Because remember, that's what he's going to do throughout his public ministry. He goes from city to city to city, doing the same thing, healing people, casting out demons. And here he says, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so he needs rest and he needs to recover from his ministry in Capernaum. There's a good reminder here for us. Again, showing compassion to those who are suffering will be costly. At times, it will be tiring. It, it made Jesus tired. Though he was holy and sinless, Jesus Christ still had a human nature, one that would get spiritually, emotionally, and physically tired. By the giving of himself in ministry, a ministry marked by compassion, even our Lord needed to rest and be refreshed. He needed time in prayer. If it was necessary for Christ to do this, to take time to pray and rest, then it it must be even more necessary for us who follow Christ. This is why prayer is not an option. If you want to serve Christ, if you want to have compassion towards others, you need to be refreshed. Prayer and time with God, whatever you call it, quiet time. When I was a new Christian, that that was the, the, the term. You need a quiet time. I didn't get excited about a quiet time. It sounded like a time out. And, and I was a new Christian. Time with God. Time alone with God. Time in the word. Time in prayer. If Jesus needed it, so do we. But it, but it doesn't seem like Jesus was given a whole lot of time that day to pray and to commune with God, to prepare for, for his next uh, city in, in ministry. Because the people looked for Jesus. They, they got up and said, where is he? And they found him. And when they learned that he was planning on leaving, they tried to keep him in Capernaum. They wanted Jesus to stay with them. Now, it's not hard to understand why. They had just experienced Christ's authority, Christ's power, Christ's compassion. They wanted Jesus to set up shop in their city. You know what it reminds me of is the transfiguration. Remember, they're they're up on the mount, and Peter and James and John are there. This amazing thing happens. And the amazing thing isn't even that, that Moses and Elijah appear there on the mount but that the the glory of Jesus Christ is revealed temporarily. They they get a a better sense and picture of of who he is in in all of his glory. And what does Peter want to do? He wants to set up shop. Hey, Jesus, why don't we just stay here? Like, this was really awesome. This was really good. I really like this. We'll build some tents. We'll hang out here on the mountain. And that's what the people in Capernaum wanted. This was amazing. They didn't want it to end. And, And can we blame them? But But Jesus is on a mission. Healing the sick and liberating the demon-possessed was not Jesus' main purpose. Instead, these miracles and his other acts of compassion served his main purpose, his mission. And he says in verse 43, that mission, that purpose, is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And so for this reason, Jesus had to leave Capernaum to go to other towns to preach. And that's what we, we see he did in verse 44. He left Capernaum and went to synagogues and cities and continued to heal and cast out demons and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. J.C. Ryle notes that a verse like this should silence forever the foolish remarks that are sometimes made against preaching. 
The mere fact that the eternal Son of God undertook the office of a preacher should satisfy us that preaching is one of the most valuable means of grace. Let us beware of despising preaching. In every age of the church, it has been God's principal instrument for the awakening of sinners and the edifying of saints. According to the state of the pulpit will always be the state of a congregation and of a church. As we consider this quote, which I believe is prophetic and true for today, and we look at the state of the church, if we want to think about one of the main issues, one of the main reasons why so many churches are watered down, why people don't know how to defend the faith, why people can't explain simple basic doctrine, why cults are grabbing so-called evangelical Christians, why, why people are leaving the church. What is the reason? I believe it's, it's preaching. A lack of faithful, expository preaching. Instead of investing in preachers and preaching, what are churches doing? Investing in smoke machines and light shows. A greater sound system. Now there's a place, I don't think, for smoke machines and light shows, but for a sound system. But not to, not to set aside preaching. What happens in so many church services now? Preaching is shorter and shorter and shorter. I grew up in a tradition where the sermon was 10 minutes, maybe 15. 20 minutes was long. People started moving around. Every once in a while I see people moving around when I touch the 50-minute mark. All right? I'm not even done with the pastoral prayer sometimes in 10 minutes. Why? Because what we as Christians need is the word of God to affect our hearts. We think we're all that in a bag of chips so much. We need to be reminded that we're not, that God is great, that we are weak, that we need his compassion. This is another one of those glory trails that I, that I was tempted to go off in, and, and I did just briefly go off in, but I, I'll get more into that in future weeks. Picking back up in verse 43. This is the first of many references in the Gospel of Luke to the kingdom of God. Here, Luke does not go into detail as to what the kingdom of God is. That will become clearer and clearer in future passages, but there will be no definition. There's no simple, here's what it is. It's given to us in stories and in teaching. But the effects of the kingdom of God are clear. Healing and liberty. And it all comes from and is given to people by Jesus, the Son of God, who is the Christ. And why is this? Because who is the king of the kingdom of God? Jesus. And so wherever the king is, there is the kingdom. The kingdom of God had come to Capernaum that day, and Jesus was preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God, because Jesus, the king, was there. I want to close by considering the place of miracles. What, what do the miracles serve if, if they weren't his mission? Now, sometimes churches get this backwards, and we Christians get this backwards. We think the preaching and all this stuff is, is there so that we can show compassion to people. So it's not bad to feed the poor. There are ministries that are faithful to the gospel that do that. It's not bad to take care of the homeless. It's not bad. None of those things are bad, but, but oftentimes that, that's it. Jesus oftentimes did those things or started with those things. Uh, not just often, he always did this. And then he preached. Those things led to preaching. They served a purpose. And so what purpose do his miracles and the casting out of demons serve in his preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. I'm just going to give you two, two purposes. There are more. They verified him as the messenger, the prophet, the one that the people should listen to. 
They saw him heal somebody. They saw him cast out a demon and that verified that his message was true. Now there's false miracles. There's, there's demonic powers, but, but they're also real miracles. And Jesus performed them because he is the king. And people, people knew and, and were encouraged to trust his message on the kingdom of God because he did these things. And secondly, they provided everyone who heard the good news of the kingdom of God a glimpse into the kingdom of God. The healings and the, the liberations, they foreshadowed what awaits all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And friends, all who repent and trust in Christ will be healed and liberated, not just temporarily on earth. Now, healing is great, and we pray for it. I don't believe it's the same as it was then. I do believe we pray for it, and we ask God to heal somebody. But even if somebody's healed in this life, unless Jesus comes back first, they're going to experience more suffering. Maybe that cancer will return, and eventually they're going to die. But what we find in the miracles and the works of, of Christ in this passage and throughout the Gospels is a, is a picture, a glimpse into the, the permanent and eternal healing that comes in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we will all be forever healed, physically and spiritually. Glory is coming. And as we read passages, we come across passages like this, they give us a little taste of that, a little experience of, of what's to come. They remind us that, that only Jesus brings true and lasting healing to his people. Only Jesus can liberate us from the bondage of evil. Only Jesus can bring the healing that we need. Jesus rebukes a high fever. He lays his hands on sick people and they are healed. He commands the demons to be gone and to be quiet and they obey. These draw us, not ultimately to the miracles, but to Jesus. As we continue in the Gospel of Luke, miracles like, like these will happen so often that some of us may get used to Jesus doing the miraculous. But I believe each one can strengthen and reinforce the great and glorious truth of who Jesus is. An opportunity for us to, to see his character, his heart for those who are suffering is put before us every single time. Every time we see Jesus do what only he can do in healing somebody or casting out a demon, it's, an, it's a compassionate act. And, and here's what it should do for you, Christian. Provide more fuel for worship. Lead you to praise God throughout the week. And, and that, that worship service with your, with your church family. It's more nutrient for your, nutrients for your soul. Because your soul needs to be, to be provided for by Christ. And it is more medicine for your weary heart. And it's on display this morning in this passage. The compassion, the love, the grace of God in Christ. I hope you see it. For it is so good for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. It reveals to us who you are. Your power, your authority, and your compassion. Oh, how wonderful, how sweet how good it is to reflect on your compassion towards the suffering. Help us to not forget that we are the suffering. We are the needy. We are those who desperately needed and in Christ have received the compassion that you offer to sinners. I do pray that this morning, those who are suffering, physically, spiritually, emotionally, in whatever way, would, would get a glimpse of your compassion towards people and that it would do their heart good. 
God, we also pray that those who do not yet see, do not yet believe, would, would in the, the reflecting on of this passage be moved, that your spirit would work through and press into their hearts, break through the stony ground of their hearts, and that they would see what we see, a God who is compassionate and kind, who sent his son to redeem sinners, and they would join us in believing and trusting in him and worship him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.